0: Good afternoon and welcome to the Royal Academy of Arts. My name is Amy Blewett and I am the Events and Lectures Coordinator here. Today's introductory lecture for Rubens and his legacy will be by curator Arturo Galancino, who joined the Royal Academy in 2013 and before that studied in Milan and Turin, researching history criticism and North Italian Renaissance art. Arturo previously had curatorial positions in the Louvre where he worked on the 2008 exhibition Mantegna and in 2009 on the exhibition Titian, Tintoretto and Veronese. In 2010, he joined the National Gallery where he was one of the curators of the exhibition on Leonardo in 2011. At the Royal Academy, before curating Rubens and his legacy, Arturo was also the curator of our Sackler Gallery's exhibitions, Renaissance Impressions and Giovanni Battista Moroni. It is with great sadness that I must also announce that Arturo is leaving the RA in a couple of weeks to take up the position of General Director at the Palazzo Strozzi in Florence. Today will be his last public event at the RA, so please join me in giving a very big and warm welcome to Arturo Galancino.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Actually, Amy, you ruined the surprise. I wanted to add a saying like that is my last uh, event at Royal Academy, you know, for a little bit playing the emotional thing, but anyway, oh, sorry. So the, the surprise is spoiled, but anyway, let's go on. Um, today we are talking about Rubens and his legacy, an exhibition just started two days ago, uh, with great, re- already great result of public. It, uh, we are very excited about uh, What's going on? the display is amazing. It's very spectacular. I must say few words about the exhibition before starting the presentation, because it's not maybe something so obvious. Um, it's not an exhibition of Rubens. We have to say that since the beginning. It's an exhibition about the legacy of this artist, of these artists through three centuries. It's a very, I would say, experimental project, because actually we are going to show how the images, how the invention of an artist like Rubens survived. Survived through through the period, through the fashion, through the change of style. This is, I think, is a groundbreaking show if we consider the show in this way. You know, uh, Rubens was uh, one of the greatest artists of his time, probably of all the times. Was uh, the painters of the big, uh, the most important rulers of his uh, generation. He was, uh, a humanist, an intellectual, a collector. He was also a diplomat working for his patron, hmm? also in diplomatic, uh, almost high-level diplomatic mission. An artist like that, of course, he had a great legacy. And the legacy we are going to explore here is sometimes expected, sometimes not. We are not only talking about the direct legacy, about uh, your dance or or Van Dyck, all the artists working in his workshop but also, uh, for instance, about the early romantic French, uh, French painters, like Jericho or Delacroix. Uh, people were completely mad about Rubens. Or, uh, for instance, other British names, like uh, the, the portrait and landscape painters of the uh, 18th and 19th century. The exhibition is divided in themes, so I think that the thematical approach, because we are not talking about chronology here, we are talking about images. We're talking about, as I told you, inspiration. Um, so we think that the thematical approach is, of course, the best one. The first theme, the, sorry, the first section is, is the first section of the exhibition. It's called poetry, and is playing around the, the landscape theme. So the first, in the first room, you will see, for instance, how Rubens, who, by the way, was not very famous for being a a landscape painter. Uh, Rubens started with landscape, especially at the, at the end of his life, uh, more or less around the 30s of 17th century. Was already, uh, I wouldn't say retired, but he was already uh, about 50 years old, and he, uh, he bought a, an estate close in the countryside of Antwerp, and he started painting landscape. This landscape had an influence, especially in uh, British landscape. You can see in this room very clo- very uh, clearly how Constable, in a certain way, uh, was looking to Rubens. Of course, it was not only looking to Rubens. How all these many of the portraits that are today in British collection, in the Wallace, for instance, th- these paintings um, of the Hermitage, for instance, uh, they were in private collection, in aristocratic collection. So the patron of the British landscape painters had, in their possession, some painting by Rubens. In this way, the legacy passed through the British art. What is interesting that Rubens, uh, of course, was not a modern landscape painter. He's not a painter of Barbizon, was not painting in the countryside and plein air, but actually was creating his landscape, as we can see on the top, in the studio, in a, I would say, artificial way. hmm? But But mixing up his emotion, his, probably think that uh, he was looking outside in the countryside uh, where he was living at the time. But um, what is interesting is that he was considered as a very highly naturalistic landscape painter. For this reason, he was praised and copied by these modern artists. Rubens, doing that, uh, I think voluntarily, wanted to go against uh, the typical 17th century fashion of idealized landscape. He had the, the opportunity to uh, know this uh, italianizing landscape in, in Rome during his staying in Italy. So the Roman school of uh, uh, Carracci, Poussin, uh, Claude Lorraine. So the, we have to read the landscape by Rubens also as a kind of reaction in a more naturalistic way to this idealized fashion of landscape. But I think that the very, protagonist of uh, the section is the Garden of Love, one of the most important loans of our exhibition, lent for the first time the, from, from the Prado in Madrid. It's a painting entering the royal collection, the Spanish royal collection, very early, in 1666, so about 25 years after the death of Rubens. Rubens was loved in Spain, especially by uh, Philip IV, uh, he bought the collection of Rubens after the death of the artist. And uh, of course, many paintings by Rubens were done in Spain by Rubens. He traveled there. So this painting is to be, to be also put in this Spanish fashion of Rubens that is very, was very strong since the life of the artist. This painting actually is to be considered as a private painting. There are many versions. This version was the version Rubens painted for himself, we can say like that. What, what does he represent? It's a very uh, interesting scene. Uh, you see, it's a group of uh, young people, hmm, all together, parting in a certain way. They are elegant, elegantly dressed. It's, it's a great showing off of fashion, of jewels, of think, rich and... Uh, precious texture. All these people basically is having fun together. There is evident scene of flirtation. Look for instance, here in the foreground, I have the laser. Okay, so here you see this scene of uh, this man whispering in the ear of this girl. Here, I don't know if uh, you can see it, there is a couple of fountains. And this, this boy is trying to protect, with his uh, hat, the head of this girl from the water coming out from this fountain. And with the other hand, he's touching the breast of another girl. This, I, we can say, is really an old trick, because... <laughs> of course. So, many couples all together. This couple is pushed by this uh, putto. Huh? Symbol of love, of course, to join the happy uh, group. So it's a very living scene, full also of uh, uh, details linked to the daily life, to the love life, the daily love life. So of course, this kind of uh, image should be mitigated by some symbolic presence. That's the reason why we have this putti. Symbol of marriage, symbol of love. We have the doves, we have the garland. You have many classical and mythological presents the Venus squirting milk out of her breast. You see, it's a, it's a statue, but it doesn't look like a statue. It's very soft for being a statue. The Three Graces. So all these classical, symbolical, mythological elements are there to elevate the daily and a little bit uh, hmm, sexy, images that we are looking in this way, this kind of imagery was socially accepted. But what is interesting here to say is that this painting should be linked to a very specific moment of the life of, of the painter, the last decade of his life. So we have just seen, he was painting landscape, living in the, in the countryside in a beautiful state. But actually, during this time, he also had a second wedding with a very beautiful girl. They said the most beautiful girl in Antwerp, Helene Fourmont. She was also very young, uh, 16 years old. He was 53, and she was the daughter of a very rich uh, silk dealer in Antwerp, one of the richest family in town. So actually Rubens found a very big deal, as you can imagine, at the very end of his life. He was very uh, lucky about that. And so, after, especially after the death of the first beloved wife, Isabella Brandt. So in a certain way, Ruben is here celebrating with this painting, with this kind of image, with this kind of, uh, of ideas, the love found again at the very end of his life. So I think that it's also interesting to, when we read a painting, to think about what was going on uh, during the life of the author who painted it. In this, on the same wall, we are hanging these five amazing preparatory drawings by Rubens. They are, maybe you will recognize the flirting guy, one of the seated girl, the couple coming, another girl sitting in the garden, and the couple on the right, you see? I think you can recognize all these people. Hmm? So it's a very, I think also in terms of scholarship, it's a very interesting opportunity because we are giving an incredible vision also about the process, the working process of the artist inventing this kind of imagery. And, But of course, this exhibition is not only about Rubens, as as we said, it's more about his legacy, his influence. So the other protagonist of this room is a French painter of the early 18th century, one of the most famous protagonists of the Rococo, Jean-Antoine Bateau. Watteau is normally considered to be the inventor of the so called fête galante. When we say fête galante in our sometimes too difficult art history language, we mean exactly what we have, we have, what, what we have just uh, seen with Rubens scene of flirtation, of parting, in beautiful setting, grand architectural setting, sometimes with poetic landscape, with people playing. Uh, singing or dancing, as you can see. So actually, 100 years after, Pateau was more or less doing the same kind of imagery painted by Rubens. So we can say that uh, he's not really the inventor of the the Fête Galante, or maybe it's better to say that he was deeply inspired by Rubens. How? The drawings, through his drawings. The painting, as, as we have said, was in Spain already. But all the, many of these drawings belong to Pierre Crozat. Pierre Crozat was uh, the banker of the King of France and friend of jean of vateau So basically, Vateau had access to the collection of Crozat, and he was able to be inspired by the studies of Rubens. So this link is interesting, not only about the iconography then reinvented by Vateau, but also about the technique, because few years ago, in the, actually in the Royal Academy, there was a, a beautiful exhibition about Bateau as a draftsman, and we remember all these beautiful tracrion drawings. So here we have also this kind of ancestor of this technique, always by Rubens. Okay, I go on with the second section dedicated to portraits, section called, called elegance. The protagonist of this room are, of course, this uh, couple of uh, portraits. On the right, you see a very beautiful example of an early portrait by by Rubens, and on the left, an early example by Van Dyck. They were both painted in Genoa, in Italy. Genoa, in this moment, was the richest and the most important city in Europe, thanks to its trade, all over the world. And Rubens, during his staying in Italy, uh, spent a long time there, working for the important banker and trader of the the city. So, of course, he had also the opportunity of painting portraits of these people, and this is the portrait of the Princess Grimaldi. It's very very interesting to see how Rubens changed a little bit elaborated the typical scheme of uh, the late 16th century portraiture. If you have seen the exhibition Moroni upstairs, uh, finished yesterday, by the way, you will remember you know, these matrones seated on this chair in, the grand, in their grand palaces. Here Rubens is using more or less the same typology, the same scheme. Of course, it was a canon used in this moment, but of course, try to give more life to this to this image. And how does it do? Well, first of all, beautiful, this idea taken from the Venetian tradition no, to open the portrait with this beautiful vista on uh, outside in this loggia where the, the Princess Grimaldi is. Then it gives a kind of theatrical sense. Look, for instance, this idea of the red curtain. No? It's like somebody just opened the curtain. It, we understand, so there is a kind of epiphany. No? We have a v- the vision of this beautiful, incredibly elegantly dressed. I would not, would not like to wear this kind of rough, by the way. Uh, and we understand also who opened the, 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 who opened, um, the curtain. This man is opening another curtain, you see? So it's really like a, a scene of theater. And this man, uh, we see that is quite peculiar is a presence and completely antagonist to the beauty of the, of the, of the young girl. He, he, his, his face is very grotesque. Actually, he's a dwarf. Dwarfs at the time were really fashionable. Uh, all the great family had dwarfs at, at home. And Rubens knew it very well because during his stay in Italy, uh, he mainly worked for the Duke of Gonzaga, Duke of Mantua. And we know that in Mantua, the Gonzaga had entire palaces, small palaces, done for family of dwarfs. So at the time before, they were not very politically correct, I would say. And there were this taste of having this, uh, uh, this creature, as they said. So Rubens here is uh, giving the sense of this luxury item, sorry for the term, for, in this portrait. Then another sense of movement, also kind of funny and witty Presence is this dog, normal a symbol of fidelity. You can see that is, anyway, is depicted in a very peculiar attitude, playing with the leg of his mistress. On the left, we have the legacy of Rubens, the direct legacy of Rubens with Anthony van Dyck, the best pupil of Rubens, um, probably one of the. Best painter of all the 17th century. And another with with his example of another Genoese Genoese princess. We have this more or less the same structure, you say the same loggia, but of course, we are in presence of a much more severe image. Uh, There is no sense of movement, everything is very serious, very grand. Um, In a certain way, it's a more official uh, portrait, and we must say that these kind of portraits kind of portrait were set up by Van Dyck. And these portraits, the portrait by Van Dyck, will be very, very fashionable all over Europe, especially here in the UK, in UK, sorry, in England. You know that Van Dyck uh, worked the most part of his career in England, and this was the, will be the example, not only for the 17th century British portrait, but also for the uh, following centuries. So for this reason, in the room, you will see some example of British painters. We have Lawrence. We we have also Reynolds, for instance. Here again, we try to show some example of this uh, Rubens or Van Dyckian legacy in the UK. And also, we are playing around the theme of uh, uh, these portraits by Rubens, the so-called portrait of Helene Fourmont, so the, this beautiful girl we have just mentioned before, the second wife of Rubens. The, the original portrait is, uh, this is a print, of course. The original portrait is in uh, Lisbon, is on panel, and it can travel. So in this exhibition, sometimes we use print, because many paintings by Rubens are, uh, especially the, the painting done on panel, are impossible to, to move for conservation reasons. Some others are too big for traveling, you know, there are, Rubens is a very difficult artist uh, for doing an exhibition. In some case, we had to uh, choose the print. And for the proposal of the exhibition, actually, prints are much more important than the paintings because prints were traveling. So the prints was the way of spreading the legacy, really, through Europe and through the world. So, but anyway, we'll talk about that later. I think that this trio is quite, uh, Speaking, no? it's clear how Lawrence knew the uh, print by, probably the print by, by Rubens, uh, and when he was inspired in his portrait, and especially Thomas Lawrence, uh, his, I think this portrait of the Duchess of Gloucester is very highly Rubensian. But uh, I mentioned at the beginning how Rubens uh, was influential, how he had really the most important patrons of the time. In the section called Power, we are trying to analyze this aspect of his output. And it's again something very difficult to be done because we want there to show two cycles, two the big decoration cycles done by Rubens at the beginning of the 30s, end of the 20s. The first one, the one for the Queen of France, the Italian Maria de' Medici, the wife of the IV, and the uh, decoration of the ceiling for Charles I, So here in London, in Banketing House in Whitehall, still in Loco. It's one of the uh, most incredible uh, thing that we can admire in London. Probably is no, not so well known and deserve to be, uh, to have more fame actually because it's still there and we can understand a lot visiting this, uh, uh, this monument, this monument of London. Here, so well, what we are showing in the exhibition, of course, we, have, we also have a, a movie, a video, showing uh, um, this cycle, as just mentioned, but we have, of course, sketches that are very important because with these sketches, Rubens not only invented the idea, but sometimes the sketches were presented to the patron, so they were, uh, actually, the decisions were taken looking uh, to the sketches. So this triumph of Harry IV belonging to the cycle of Marie de Médicis, of course, was very influential for the direct legacy of Rubens, like Jordan, a pupil, a famous pupil by Rubens. When Jordan had to uh, decorate the palace of uh, the Prince of Orange close to The Hague for this triumph, probably was looking to the example of Rubens. Of course, Rubens didn't invite the triumph the imagery of triumphs were already existent in the classic tradition, in the Renaissance tradition. Uh, I mentioned Rubens was working in in Mantua. So in Mantua, uh, at the time, there was the famous cycle of triumphs by Mantegna that now is in Hampton Court. So uh, what is interesting here to say is that Rubens was surely very influential, but Rubens was a kind of bridge, a bridge through the past. and and the future, thanks to his culture, thanks to his long staying in Italy, thanks to his knowledge about the Renaissance art, about the classic art, really, for this reason, uh, Rubens was a kind of repertoire, never-ending repertoire of image, idea, and for this reason was so, also for this reason was so influential. Let's go on, we see with this sketch by Charles Lebrun, how uh, Lebrun, was looking again to the cycle of Marie de Médicis for his decoration of the Galerie de Glace in Versailles. So this idea of mixing up mythological scenes with the life of, with the propaganda of the life of the king, here we are talking about um, Louis XIV, of course, was an idea that Lebrun probably um, knew probably was also inspired by, by Rubens in, 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 in the invention of this cycle. Um, we have to say that this is something that we don't really expect because Lebrun is normally considered to be a classicist, a, a painter that was completely against the uh, style, the baroque style of, of Rubens. But in this case, in, in another case, you will see how, Ruben, uh, how Lebrun actually was aware of the art of the Flemish artist. Talking about uh, England, here we have on the left this one of the sketches that we have on display uh, done by Rubens for Banquet House is the sketch of the central part of the ceiling with the ascension, the apotheosis of James I, the father of Charles I, of course. And especially this idea uh, was very influential. For the first time we had in the UK this idea of, as the Italians said, S'fondamento fundamento so of breaking the perspective of the ceiling and creating an illusionary space, hmm? extending the architecture, going beyond the limit, the structural limit of the palace. Of course, this was a great discovery in this country, and you will see how during the seventeenth, also during the 18th century, uh, this kind of idea was used and reused for the big, decoration, was the source of inspiration for the big decoration. Like this one, this is the sketch for the ceiling of uh, uh, the Greenwich Hospital, decoration for the Greenwich Hospital. Another section of our exhibition, very strong, uh, is the exhibition on uh, Rubens and, uh, is the section about the Rubens and religious painting. Probably one of the uh, genres where Rubens was most famous uh, when he came back to the Flanders after his long uh, trip to Italy. We are about 1608. Uh, We had uh, the new rulers of the Flanders, Spanish Flanders, of course, uh, the Archdukes Isabella and Albert, uh, trying to regain control of this territory also through the faith, also through the uh, counter-reformation the counter-reformated Catholic faith. So we are just after uh, the war of religion, in a moment where uh, of great tension, big tension, between the Protestant and the Catholic. Of course. In this moment, to impose his, the power of these new Rubens was also uh, passing through uh, the religious imagery. And Rubens became, uh, really, the most important painter, in this sense, in Antwerp. And so for this reason, if you go to Antwerp, you will find many of these huge, very huge, sometimes four or five meters, uh, altarpieces, decorating the the main church in town. Of course, this this kind of object can't travel. In the exhibition, we show some prints, but we have really the privilege to show this painting. This is more a human scale, because it was done for private devotion, It's a small triptych, but not so small, actually. But this triptych was really influential, copied by many artists, and I think that this object embodies very well all these new elements of the religious language of Rubens, the language of this uh, moment of the Counter-Reformation. A language dramatic, very dramatic, highly dramatic, in a certain way didactic, done for inspiring the faith on the beholders, and a style done with many gruesome and horrific details. Look, for instance, all this blood here, coming down from the uh, wound here to the corpse of of the Christ and going down to the, until the hand, this idea of showing the body of crimes with a realistic image of a corpse, also with the rigidity of, uh, uh, of the corpse if you you will see that in the show there is the blood coming out from the nose the the, the eyes are dirty it's a, wow it's a very shocking image and this was actually uh, the style uh, required by the patron uh, to Rubens the style more i would say uh, the best yes the best style the best language to communicate the new faith this painting was really famous as the Christ Crystal pie, the Christ on the straw, for this idea of putting the, uh, the straw on the, on the marble bed. And through the prince, but not only through the prince, was inspiring for many generations of artists until the late 19th century. Here we have Delacroix. Hmm? You see the position of the Christ of the body is really the same. Delacroix knew the print, of course, but he had the opportunity of admiring, when he was young, many of these big altarpieces by Rubens I just mentioned. Also this one, by the way, also the triptych. Thanks to Napoleon. Hmm? Uh, when the Musee de Louvre was opened in 1793, all the art looted in the Flanders and the north of France, at the time it was still Flanders, was brought to the Louvre. And so all the generation, all this generation of young men, like Delacroix, also his master, Jericho, were fascinated by the art of, of Rubens. It was a, a really great discovery. In this sense, uh, the early Romantic uh, painters were, in France, uh, in a certain way, they are, they are descendant. They are uh, late followers of Rubens. I mentioned the importance of prints uh, in the career of Rubens, was a very skillful entrepreneur, and he realized that, thanks to the print, uh, his fame would be spread all over the world, and, of course, prints were also an important source of income. This is a very interesting example. On the left, we have the print of the crucifixion, one of these gigantic uh, altar piece, uh, painted by Rubens uh, since his return to Antwerp, this is a very important image, was called the coup de lance, because it's representing the, the dead of Christ, no? thanks to the, the shot by Longinus. Mm-hmm. And these prints were used as a source of inspiration by the artists, of course, but not only. Also, the, for instance, the Jesuits, the Jesuit missionaries, they were using these prints as a tool of uh, uh, education for the uh, local population in the colonies South America, East Asia. For this reason, if you go to Mexico or Peru, you will find uh, many uh, pop, I would say, art of the time of the 17th and 18th century inspired by the Prince of after the Prince, uh, the prince of Rubens. And uh, here we show a very interesting example of this uh, influence because we have a dish done uh, in the early 18th century in China so by Chinese artisan using, as you can see very well, uh, the prints of Rubens as a source of inspiration, as a model, so I think it's a very uh, interesting case of the strong legacy of the painter. Another unexpected uh, artist in the exhibition is Klimt. We have here this sketch for decoration, for uh, the the city, for the town hall of the city of Fiume. And here we have a sketch done by Rubens uh, for the Jesuit church of Antwerp, the biggest religious decoration done by Rubens burned in 1718. So today for understanding uh, the scale, uh, visually also, this decoration, we have to uh, look to sketches like this one. But this is not important now, you see how The Santa Cecilia by Klimt is very similar to the Santa Cecilia by Rubens. We don't know. uh, There is no document that Klimt uh, looked uh, to Rubens. But actually, the sketch by Rubens was and is still today in the academia in Vienna, where Klimt actually was living and studying. So probably in a certain way. Klimt had the souvenir, the memory of the sketch uh, by Rubens, and he reused it, he elaborated it centuries after for his invention of the Santa Cecilia. One of the most uh, interesting section of the exhibition is surely the section on violence, because these violent scenes, uh, this kind of colossal scene created by Rubens were really uh, famous and influential in the exhibition. We are, the, the, the first part of the section is built around the fall of the damned. Another gigantic opposition by Rubens is six meter high. Of course, it's not in the show, unfortunately. Uh, now in the in Munich, in the Museum of Munich, what we have in the show, an early copy by uh, a pupil of Rubens, Berkhorst. And maybe some details will tell you more about uh, the vision of this incredible scene of last judgment with uh, the damned falling down, tortured by uh, terrible devils, also with some grotesque elements. And of course, the the source of inspiration for Rubens in this case uh, was Michelangelo. But Rubens was able to give life, to give movement, more drama, and also more witty and grotesque details, like these three gluttons here. Uh, to the invention uh, of Michelangelo. So this kind of image were really influential. And also, Le again, this classic painter of um, the late 17th century in France. So uh, in France, Rubens was really con- considered very badly during this time, because he, 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 he embodied everything French artists hated. Uh, the the uh, academy, French academy of this time, was uh, everything around the drawings, the balance, the style, while Rubens was movement, color, and uh, crazy invention. But we see here how Lebrun, for this big sketch for uh, the decoration of the chapel of Versailles, was directly inspired by the the painting by Rubens. All these monsters, for instance, are exactly the same that we find in the painting uh, of the Flemish master. The the sketch was done as a proposal for the decoration of the Versailles Chapel, but it was refused, probably considered uh, not hmm, matching with the local taste. But of course, the protagonist of this section, I would say also of this exhibition, according to my taste, is the the scene with the tiger hunt. Uh, The section with all the hunting scene and the legacy uh, of this kind of imagery, I think, is is a very, very strong uh, session in our exhibition. This painting uh, was painted as an early Rubens. Uh, at the time, it belonged to a series painted for the Prince of Bavaria, Maximilian I. Of course, a series with other scenes of exotic uh, hunting scenes. This painting, I think, is very specific because uh, Represents perfectly all the style of Rubens, I would say more, all the style of the Baroque, and is a, is a perfect tool for explaining uh, what Rubens was, what, what was his language, how Rubens was working. Uh, we are in front, is a, is a colossal painting, it's a three meter and a half, and you will see how imposing it, it is in our big rooms. So it's interesting also to think about that because before we were mentioning painting 5 6 meters so also to understand how the scale which is very important in the in the work of rubens why why is it, this painting is so interesting for our narrative you see uh, why we can say that is the perfect example of the baroque of the baroque art by rubens many things are going on in this painting you can see is a uh, kind of turmoil you see uh, many scenes many uh, things are, are happening it was like the cinema of the time there is an incredible narrative in this image here on the for instance the the protagonist of the um, of the show let's say like that of course is this central element with this tiger uh, killing uh, this man also with this detail of the f- the nails on the forehead of this poor hunter but of course, on the, on the right here, we see, uh, for instance, an- another hmm? part of the of the scene. This man is saving his friend, attacked by a lion. Uh, very bravely, trying to open the mouth of a lion with his hands. Uh, so of course, I would not suggest to try to do it. At uh, home, I, I told my, uh, tried once with my cat, and it was, <laughs> and it was uh, very dangerous like that. So, of course, there is a sense of irrealism in this scene. But everybody at the time was able to recognize the history of Hercules, for instance. This is a classical quote of one of the fatigues of Hercules, Hercules fighting the Lion of Nemea. So this iconography was already something that the cultivated patrons could understand what Rubens was uh, talking about. So this is the left, the left side of the painting. On the right, we have a very pathe- pathetic scene of this, uh, this leopard dead, It's like a fallen hero. It's uh, a very uh, intense uh, uh, scene, another very gruesome and horrific detail. You see all this blood, the lance killing him. And just above, another pathetic moment, this uh, female, of the tiger trying to save his cops, you see, his children. And she has the children in her mouth. So, on on the left side, we have this violent classical quote. On the right side, we have this uh, uh, pathetic, emotional part of the painting. Then, if we admire the rest, we see that our protagonist, this beautiful male tiger, is going to be killed very soon by this man. And other things are going on. This this man dressed in the orient in oriental clothes was, a, again, something really fashionable, this taste for the uh, exotic countries. Something really invented by Ruben at the time, thanks to uh, his staying in a country of trading, thanks to his travels uh, all around the Europe, he was able to know other realities. And here is what is, trying to give in this painting, hmm. this, this sense of exotism, the exotic taste. Also the idea of having a lion, a leopard, tigers in the same scene. is not something impossible in nature. Hmm. Only in the London Zoo maybe you can find these three species all together. But of course, it's an invention. There is nothing true in these images. It's a completely uh, an invention done by mix and mesh. Ma- many inventions, many ideas, many drawings, things of the past. You can find, for instance, the, the great protagonist of the, of the painting is a little bit the center of all this movement, of all this process, is this amazing white stallion, raring stallion. We find this stallion many times in many other compositions by Rubens. Probably was a drawing uh, done in many ways, many dimensions, so sketches, used and reused in the workshop of uh, of Rubens. We uh, can understand how Rubens invented the composition. He put these things in the middle, then he built up around. And of course, another, these this beautiful white horses, you see, it's like static, it's like a statue. It's a moment of relax in all this uh, uh, dramatic uh, uh, universe around. It was another quote for the patron, for the male patron uh, of, uh, uh, of Rubens. He's a Spanish stallion. This movement is a movement of haute they call it. it's an equestrian movement. So again, the artificiality. So is the art- all the artificiality becoming natural, you know? This is really the sense of the Baroque, the sense of all the art of the century, and also especially the sense of Rubens, because Rubens was one of the inventors of this language, the inventor of this very naturally artificial language. Let's go on the sketch with the hunting scene by Rubens. Very interesting to to see the style, the quick style of the master when he has to work uh, with this kind of composition in a small small format. And of course, now the protagonist of the section, again Eugène Delacroix, who considered Rubens the homer of the painters, the father of all the painters, and of course, his own father, he considered himself uh, a late follower of the Flemish master, and one of his trademark, one of the trademark of Delacroix is the Orientalism. Hmm? And are these uh, Oriental hunting scenes with all the sense of movement, of pathos, of course, we are uh, completely another style, we are two century and a half after, but you can see the sense of Rubens, and we know thanks to the journal of Delacroix, thanks to many things, that he was really looking directly to Rubens. And thanks to Rubens, Delacroix, according to what he said, was able to, f- to have the freedom from the l- rules of the academy. So, uh, it's thanks to Rubens that Delacroix was able to invent this, his style, similar to the style of Rubens, known with color and movement and passion. Exactly. Uh, it could be considered the Rubens of the 19th century. So, at the end, Dulcis in Fundo, we have the section about uh, the most uh, typically Rubensian subject, the nudes, the flashes. Everybody associated the name of Rubens to this uh, kind of imagery. Rubens was very famous for uh, the way he treated the flashes, and probably, surely, as inspirational by uh, all the painter uh, who had to cope with nudes afterwards typical imagery used by Rubens in his erotical paintings is of course the mythology, normally the mythology. There are erotical paintings, both because of the erotical content, but of course exactly what we have said before for the Garden of Love, these erotical themes should be uh, hidden mm, in a mythological, historical, in a high level uh, context, of course in this case, uh, this scene of this girl uh, attacked by a, a creature is a uh, scene of, in a normal mythology, span and searing. And this is interesting because it's also it's a small panel and it's uh, an example how, since the beginning, this uh, imagery was fashionable and Ruben was collaborating with other artists in creating this kind of object, this kind of items. here. Rubens is the author of the Flashes. So Rubens as a specialist for Flashes, already in 1617, so very early. And the rest, the landscape, is done by Bruegel, so another flemish artist. There was a kind of collaboration uh, between these two painters who know each other. The section then you will see how the invention of the position of the nudes resist and survive through the century. For instance, this is a, an example of a cluster, as we as we say, you know, a cluster of works, uh, all starting from from the example of Rubens, this uh, uh, Sleeping an- Angelica, Sleeping Angelica, and the hermit. So it's an episode again of a very high uh, literary tradition. It's a, an example from Ariosto, from uh, Orlando Furioso of Ariosto, one of the most important poems of the Italian Renaissance. It's the story about this hermit. Magician, a wizard with a potion, a huh? uh, strong potion made Angelica, the beautiful warrior, sleeping, and, and, and then he started admiring her beautiful body. So it's a scene, I would say, very uh, intense, a scene of warriorism, with a very high sexual context, not only in the image, o- also in the story that there is behind. Of course, we have to know the story also for understanding it. And we see how this kind of imagery survives uh, through his best pupil, Van Dyck, uh, which is uh, uh, this time the same idea of the nude unveiled. uh, It doesn't belong to the Renaissance tradition but to the Greek Greek mythology. Here we are talking about Jupiter and Antiope, And then again through Watteau, this French Rococo painter, so the, the Rococo you will see in the exhibition is another moment where the language of Rubens was really well received, because especially when uh, Rubens was talking about love and sex. And then the print, and we know how Rubens, uh, how Rembrandt, this is something that we discovered in the exhibition, because it's not uh, so clear uh, how Rembrandt probably was inspired by the print after Rubens for his famous print of Jupiter and Theope. And we know that Picasso was looking Rembrandt for doing his uh, uh, etching with the, the phone and the volantin in femme. So actually, this legacy is not direct, it's indirect, but we see how also Picasso was indirectly inspired by the Flemish master. The last room of the section is still talking about flashes, about this uh, triumph of flashes in a uh, less erotic, or I would say more grotesque way in this beautiful a painting surely one of the highlights of our show. Uh, sometimes attributed to Rubens, more recently attributed to Van Dyck, but is Van Dyck working in the studio in the workshop of Rubens? So in a certain sense, is still Rubens because we have to consider that Rubens, also in terms of photography, is a difficult, uh, it's a difficult problem because he had a big workshop, and uh, so sometimes in terms of authorship. Uh, many paintings are discussed. Like in, this, in the, like in this case, surely everybody agree it's a masterpiece, but we don't know if more by Rubens or more, or more by his best pupil, Van Dyck. Some very interesting details of this painting, the scene of Bacchanal, which will be very fashionable, again during the Rococo, and again during the 19th century, especially in France. We see here Watteau and Domier directly inspired by this kind of imagery, probably not by this painting, but this kind of, of imagery, uh, which was another trademark of the Art of Rubens. The exhibition, oh, sorry, 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 ah, I ruin again the surprise, it's the second time. I <laughs> does, can't do what I want. Anyway, but the, the, the main exhibition ends with this, uh, other important loans, loan this iconic Venus Frigida, so the freezing Venus. Uh, and we end with a very early Rubens, a masterpiece of his production, and a perfect example of what we have just said about flashes, about erotism, and also about the level, all the layers of reading an image of Rubens. So what we have here? Uh, first of all, we have to say that the painting has been there are two additions here. You will see in the exhibition, it's very clear because you really s- you see the edge of the cam- canvas. Here, an addition, and here, another addition. So we have to imagine the original format of the painting really focused on the body, of the big, beautiful body of the uh, uh, Venus. So It's um, an erotic image, it's a naked, beautiful, young, a girl, but of course, is also an image to be linked to the literary world. A cultivated uh, humanist of the time uh, could re- remember a verse by Terentius, the Latin poet, saying that without without uh, food and love, uh, sorry, food, uh, yes, and love, beauty, uh, freezed. Hmm? And exactly what we are here. We have the Venus freezing and this satire helping her bringing some food and probably also something to uh, create a fire. So we have another mythology, uh, an erotic image mixed up with a mythological uh, mythological story. But there is something more because this image of this crouching girl was usually used by Rubens, by many other artists. Actually, Rubens was inspired by his memory, another Italian memory, of a Roman statue of a crouching Venus. So here we have kind of Venus with on top some real, realistic flashes. So again, we have all this lecture of of this layer of reading because a cultivated patron could recognize the poem by Terentius, they could recognize also the model uh, used by Rubens for this uh, for this girl. So we see how, again, how Rubens was a very naturalistic painter, and he was praised for his naturalism, but at the end was the most artificial uh, inventor that we can imagine. The exhibition has a coda, a contemporary coda, done by the artist Jenny Saville, one of our most famous royal academicians, so it was a little bit a challenge of uh, our show uh, you know to yes involve in the process one of our artists because the exhibition was about creating, recreating was about legacy, long-lasting legacy was about how the artists look each other so uh, we had this idea of uh, uh, challenge one of our artists, an artist known for. Her flashes, for her, her painting flashes, and normally uh, no, very often said to be a Rubensian uh, modern artist. So, what Jenny did is to find a group, a coherent group according to her taste, a coherent group um, of painting responding, of modern painting of 20th 21st century responding uh, to the art of Rubens. So, in this exhibition, you will see. For instance, paintings by Bacon, by Freud, by uh, de Koonig, by Cecily Brown, by Sarah Lucas, and of course, the last uh, painting done for the exhibition by Jenny Saville, a painting inspired by a uh, mythological story, exactly like Rubens, a story of uh, uh, rape, uh, incest, murder, not very funny by the way, and um, so in this sense, Jenny is reacting uh, to uh, to the universe of Rubens with her own work. Um, this section is not included in the catalog and something will be published afterwards. It's si- still a work in progress and a kind of experiment that uh, I hope you will like. Uh, so Thank you very much. As I told you, it will be my last uh, talk as a home curator, but I, I still have other projects with the Royal Academy in the future. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Arturo. We have time for one or two very quick questions, just at the front here. In the, uh, ele- uh, the, the first section, the third section, um, Garden of Love has an architectural backdrop, which um, to me is reminiscent of Rubens House in Antwerp, which you probably know. And similarly, in the Dulwich Vato, yeah. again, yeah. the architectural backdrop is very reminiscent of that building. Do you think, is it possible, that Fatou would have seen Rubens' house in Antwerp at all?
1: You know, this I don't know, to be honest. It's a very interesting uh, thing, what like you said. It looks like uh, a little bit like the house, uh, the Rubens' house, yes, in Antwerp. It's the style of the, a bit of the late Renaissance. It reminds us of the Mantuan architecture, the Palazzo Te, Giulio Romano. Uh, I don't know. It's a good point. I will tell. Uh,
0: yeah, yeah, I
1: will, I will. Thank you very much, sorry I can't give an answer to that. But the public is, uh, you know, more erudite than the speaker sometimes.
0: Any more questions? Just wait for the mic.
1: Try to be less erudite, please. <laughs> I have to end in a good way, okay.
0: I couldn't be less erudite if I tried, I think. But the, the, the vast uh, picture, unfortunately I've forgotten the title with the tigers. Yeah. It strikes me that it's a very strange um, choice of colours for the sky and the sea in that painting. They're very bright and cheerful and blue, and the mayhem that's going on in front of them is really extraordinary in its yeah its yeah. difference. Do you think that that colour has always been like that, or has, do you think it may have changed over time, or, is this, or this there was any reason for it?
1: This painting <laughs> is one is the only big tiger hunt, the big hunting scene by Rubens which can travel because of the good state of conservation. So we we can see that it's a painting in a very good state. But I also think that uh, it's a little bit, um, I wouldn't say over clean, but probably it lost a little bit, uh, some layers of of painting, yeah. So probably we see an image a little bit flatter than what it was in the the time. But of course, uh, 400 years ago, I I bet uh, you can't find many painting of the time uh, so well preserved and conserved, yeah.
0: Does anyone have one final burning question? No one? Okay, well thank you. Thank you very
1: much, thank you. (laughs)